0: Okay. Well, as some of you may be aware, we're going to start a a kind of new topic uh, for today, at least for a couple of weeks. Uh, We just wrapped up systematic theology, which was a couple year study for us, and we're going to give Emilio a little break before he turns to his next next topic of discussion, which I think will be biblical theology. Do a little study of biblical theology, so. As for now, we're going to do a couple weeks on the topic of marriage. The topic of marriage, which to many of us is very relevant, as some of us are married, and if you're not married, chances are you will be married, and so therefore understanding what the Bible has to say about marriage is relevant for you as well. But I guess why I, why I chose to talk about this subject is I do have a, a significantly sized pile of books on marriage um, in my library, It seems like every time we make an Amazon order, Cassie adds on another book about marriage, and I'm not too sure exactly what the hint is with that, but I have a lot of books on the subject, and about a month ago, um, I read through a book that I have right here. It's entitled Solving Marriage Problems, Biblical Solutions for Christian Counselors, and it's by Jay Adams. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jay Adams. Um, Jay Adams is... Kind of like the grandfather or the father of um, biblical counseling. Um, he's done a lot of foundational work in, in biblical counseling. I, I could recommend to you anything that he writes um, on the subject of biblical counseling. He's, he's a good reformed brother. Um, everybody, as you're studying the, the topic of biblical counseling is quoting him. Um, he has done some of the, a lot of the foundational work he's been doing counseling. Um, in the church for so long. He has so much wisdom, has gained so much insight, and just knows how to use the scriptures rightly uh, when it comes to addressing problems in, in believers' lives. So I, I read through his book, and it's a book designed really to address issues that are already present in people's marriages, right? Like usually when people's marriages come to the point where they need counseling, there's there's pretty... Um, in a sense obvious and and, and big problems if they're they're seeking help in that sense Um, and that's what the book's designed for how to help biblical counselors in the church deal with those issues that are already there but I just thought as I read through the book I just thought how much sense it would make to present this material uh, maybe before these issues arise because I know I just thought it would make more sense to let the people know how to deal with their problems before even the problems have escalated to the point where you feel like you need biblical counseling. So uh, in one sense, it's kind of just to head the issues off at the pass. And the other thing is everything that these kind of books talk about is not like some kind of hidden knowledge reserved only for pastors or for biblical counselors. Um, that, that's kind of an exclusive thing about Christianity is that none of these things were done in a corner. None of these things are to be hidden. They're all to be proclaimed and, and shared for the church. So everything that a pastor needs to know about how to deal with marriage and what the purpose of marriage is and the problems that can arise, you need to know. They're in the scriptures for all of us to know, so um, the scriptures likewise call us to uh, admonish, to counsel, um, to do this kind of work to one another. It's not just the pastor's job. Uh, Ephesians 4 tells us that the the pastors are supposed to train uh, the people, the body, for the work of the ministry. So anything that I'm learning, as far as pastoral ministry, I want to pass on all of you because that's part of my responsibility is to equip all of you in dealing with um, everything that the Bible has as far as uh, being biblical Christians. So that's kind of why I thought we'd talk about the subject. Um, His first chapters in this book are kind of just introductory chapters. Uh, The first thing he talks about is why is marriage counseling so important? Um, that, That might seem to have some obvious answers. He first starts off talking about the fact of how, um, of how widespread the influence of culture is upon our marriages, right? Just, just secular society and just being infiltrated through media and through uh, just being surrounded by unbelieving family, friends, co-workers has an influence on our thinking and on our, our view of, of marriage that has a distorted <laughs> biblical marriage. And the other reason he writes a lot of books, particularly on the issue of marriage, is because in his experience over the, I don't know, I think it's over 40 plus years that he's been doing marriage counseling, he's saying that marriage issues are far outnumber any other issues that are brought to his attention as a pastor. When it comes to counseling, people are seeking help in their marriages more than any other issue. It's, marriage, it's issues of marriage and the family that seem to be the predominant um, issues for for pastors. And so he writes on this. And so as he finally, I guess, in a sense, cuts the chase in chapter 3, um, th- that chapter is entitled, What Causes Marriage Problems? What Causes Marriage Problems? And, and here he's kind of discussing the fact that we would all recognize that the most foundational cause of our marriage problems is the sin of Adam, right? And how Adam's sin... Uh, is, is passed on to us, and we are by nature sinners, and therefore when you put two sinners um, under the same roof, there's going to be problems, <laughs> right? That, that's, that's for sure. But the other point that he's making with this is that um, the Bible doesn't always, every time it, it talks about sin and talk about problems, it doesn't always reference Adam. It doesn't always look back to Adam. It, most of the time it's actually dealing with what he causes, like the proximate causes, of our of our relationship problems, what's the immediate cause of our problems, or you could think of it as like, how does our fallen nature actually manifest itself? What's the the very um, uh, very uh, like, is he saying proximate uh, issues behind our sin? And he says we sin, and our sin manifests itself in two different ways. We have uh, sinful concepts in our mind of marriage. Uh, sinful and erroneous concepts of marriage, or we just have flat-out sinful attitudes or sinful practices in our marriage. So it's either an error in thinking or it's an error in sin in our actions. And obviously, right, the ultimate solution to both of these is to replace whatever that error is with biblical truth. If there's an an error in thinking, you replace it with biblical truth. If, If there's an error in sinful actions, you replace those actions with biblical actions. And uh, that's a that's a big principle in all of um, J. Adams' writings and all of biblical counseling is, is to help people uh, to walk in the light in a sense. There's that put-off, put-on principle. Emilio actually referenced that, I think it was a couple of sermons ago, he referenced it where, where Paul talks about in Colossians 3, right? The put-off, put-off the deeds of the flesh, right, and put on... The new self is how Paul will use that language a lot. It's not enough to just tell people, stop doing this, right? Or whatever, whatever sinful action. You gotta fill that void. They don't know what else to do. Usually it's a habit, right? Usually they're just sitting <clears throat> by habit, by nature. You're supposed to fill that that void that you've left by telling them what is sinful and to stop doing by something that God calls for them to do. See, so that's that's a pretty common Feature and how to deal with with sin uh, in general in our marriages as well. Um, so he talks a lot about the importance of properly identifying the immediate causes of our sins. In other words, we're talking about getting to the root of, of our sins. Why exactly is it that we're sinning and, and what kind of sin is it? And it's important to do this work when you're trying to help somebody with their sin um, because you don't want to to misdiagnose them in a sense, right? Before a doctor is going to give somebody medicine, you want to make sure that you're giving them the right medicine. So he talks about the different aspects of some things we've already talked about already. Just if there's an error in a brother's thinking or a wrong idea concerning his behavior, you give them the word of God to, to correct that thinking and to correct that action. Um, you can have another instance where somebody actually already knows what is right, the right thing to do, but just isn't doing it. And then then what would be the medicine for that? What would you think would be the medicine for that? If somebody, they know what they're supposed to be, and they're just not doing it. Is this ongoing? A rebuke? Yeah, either way. Yeah, rebuke, reproof, biblical exhortation, uh, even warning, right? Those types of things is what's appropriate. But kind of to, to what I was speaking of a second ago, there's almost a third category that he discusses, it's when somebody realizes that they're not doing right, they know they're in error, but they actually don't know how to practically, or they don't know what to do right, right. They don't know how to practically work out the things that the Scripture is calling them for. And that's, that's where that put off, put on uh, concept really comes into play. So we're to help each other through all of these different issues and different errors and thinking that we make, and help each other through all of these different kinds of sins. Um, There's another very foundational principle. All this is kind of introductory work, but we must, in identifying these issues and and helping each other with our problems, is we must be careful to identify sin as sin, right? That's very important, and when I give you these, you'll understand what I'm talking about. He says, for example, uh, to call fornication immaturity is not helpful, Right To call drunkenness a sickness, um, you're actually, by addressing these sins in this way, not addressing them as sin, but as um, diseases in a sense or something like that, you're really uh, taking all hope away from the sinner by doing that. Now, now why is that? How, how is it by calling somebody who's a drunkard, labeling them as having a disease, how are you removing hope from them? Any ideas?
1: They're putting the blame on somebody
0: else putting the blame on somebody else some other you know my dad handed this down to me something like that maybe you know it's just in my nature which I wouldn't deny that drunkenness may be in somebody's nature
1: I think if you're you're taking away the idea that they have a sin then you're removing you know sin is related Mm to your
0: relationship with God Mm and so and with others you're Mm -hmm. removing that idea that you know, it's a an issue that they have with the Lord. You know, instead of you know calling it you know something that it's not. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: don't know if I'm coming across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pretty broad, broad question I asked. Yes, sir, Brother Mike. I think it's just basically you're setting forth a, a sense of they are
1: giving them false hopelessness. It's like they're going into despair. There is no hope for them. On diseased. there's no deliverance. There's no hope. There's no way out.
0: Uh, false hopelessness, you said. I like that. Yeah. So, so if they're going to fall deeper into it, it's going to make it worse. <clears throat> they're going to go deeper into their sin, so much so that they're going to be hard. Yeah, I like that. Brother Tony, Do you? See? Uh, it seen as if they're misdiagnosing the problem, and they you take away the real solution. Mm-hmm. So any solution that's offered will be the wrong one. Mm-hmm. You give the wrong uh, diagnosis of the problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, you can see, like, in kind of going to what Brother Mike said, like a false what did you say? Hopelessness. Hopelessness.
1: hopelessness.
0: Yeah, you're leaving them with the hopelessness because you see that in secular answers to the problem of like drunkenness, for instance, is it is it, is it AA? Is that what they alcohol? Yeah. Not. I've heard yes. them say like, if you're a drunk, you're always a drunk, right? You're never cured. They, what they're saying is we have no cure for this disease that you have. That's right. But see, that's that's what that's what we're saying is foundationally false, is that the Bible presents an actual cure for drunkenness or any other sin, right? What would, what would be a good text to take somebody to to provide them hope, to show them that, no, there is a cure for drunkenness, there is a cure for fornication, there is a cure for all of these sins that are affecting your marriage. Where, where's the, where would you place them? That's, what I, that's, that's exactly it. First Corinthians chapter 6, and it's actually a good place to go because there's so many sins listed here that Paul is le- is leaving you with hope for. So, um, Chris, why don't you read maybe verse read verse 9 and 10 first? It
1: says, uh, "Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, dis- do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality." Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers was inherited the kingdom of God.
0: Mm -hmm. So here Paul lays out what he, what the theologians refer to as these vice lists, right? These these sins that people have given them, given themselves over to, and are unrepentant in. Um, These are just sins that just categorize their lives. Paul's saying these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is a very scary thought, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. He's warning, I think, some in the church who are still living in these lifestyles, but obviously there's many in the church who have found the answer and have found the cure, and that's found in verse 11. Chris, read verse 11 for us. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Such were some of you. (laughs) Right, meaning you are no longer a drunkard. You are no longer a fornicator. You no are longer an idolater, right? Because why? What was the cure? They've been washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the great physician. You see, they found the cure. And so that's, that's the hope that people need is, is the grace of Jesus Christ, right? The, the world has not found a cure for drunkenness. Yes, sir.
1: I like First Peter 2.24. Okay. And it says... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then after that, by his wounds you have been healed.
0: Wow. Yeah, amen. So I, I like that one just in reference to healing. That's a good way to apply that text, huh? Yeah. Well, amen. First, first Peter 2.24. Mm-hmm. By his wounds you have been healed. Yeah, I like that. That is a good text. So, so, you, so you see why he's making this qualifying up front... Um, Point to call sin sin, right? If you're not dealing with sin in marriages as sin, you're taking away what the the, the, the answers the Bible has for you. Um, and so so just be careful to, to when dealing with sin to refer to it as sin and to deal with it as such, right? But there is the reality of sin and sickness as being um, distinct things as well. Um. Because there's behavioral issues that are caused from physiological problems, and that's real, right? And we have to, we have to uh, at least affirm that and recognize that. Um, if, if your spouse, for instance, is having um, sinful behavior or behavioral problems as a result of a brain tumor, right? Well, then what they need is an actual secular doctor in, in medicines. That may be what they actually need, um, As opposed to behavioral issues as a result of sin, and that's when they need biblical exhortation and biblical admonition and direction, right? So you just have to recognize that there are physiological, and we we can name some. I, I can think of some that specifically have to do with women, right? Physiological changes that happen to women in particular, maybe more than men, that result in behavioral changes and these kinds of things that can actually lead to sinful attitudes, and that's not an excuse, But you need to recognize the actual reason so you can deal with it appropriately, right? Um, Those are real things that that we need to recognize. And I think he puts the qualification in there Um, just because it's real and and these are very common things. Um, So what is, uh, he says here, one of the greatest root problems in marriages? He's getting to one of the most basic foundational, in a sense, misconceptions and this is the title of chapter four: Unbiblical Concepts of Marriage. And what he's talking about here is the problem that uh, the problems that develop in people's marriages because they enter into marriages with with a false assumption of what it's going to be like or what it even is, right? They come in here with uh, misconceptions, these these expectations and attitudes that are actually unbiblical and, and aren't what's actually going to be what marriage is like. Uh, I'm sure we've all. We've all experienced some of that. People come into marriages with with an illusion, like a fantasy, of what of what marriage is going to be. And, and they find out quickly, as we said before, when two sinners come together, it's not all good, right? It's not all good. So there's, there's work to be done in marriage. And I think people need to be told up front that marriage is a work. It's going to take work um, because of our sin. It, it's not as easy as we may hope it to be. So... Because people bring in these false concepts into their marriages, the first thing to establish and the first thing for us all to know and to recognize is um, is this, the significance of the origin of marriage. The significance of the origin of marriage and, and what the practical relevance that is. <clears throat> and, and, and the origin of marriage is it is of a divine origin. That's what we must all recognize and we must see the relevance of that and, and what actually is the practical ramifications of the fact that this institution is of a divine origin. What does that mean? That means that because God has instituted marriage, that he therefore has the authority and the right to define marriage, to define um, its terms, to define its rules, to define how uh, our marriages are to be orchestrated and how we're to fulfill our particular <coughs> roles. We we must recognize God's authority and sovereignty over marriage and submit ourselves to Him in that. We um, we'd all say that's probably a pretty obvious thing that we understand, but we may we may confess it. But unfortunately, I think we we need to all recognize that the world has greatly affected our thinking of marriage, and it's brought forth a lot of pragmatism in how we're to address issues and address roles, and um, we almost just want to go with whatever's easiest, right? Whatever's the easiest and less painful solution to the problems in our marriage, that's what we're going to go with, and, and those aren't always the, the most biblical um, ways to address the problems in our marriages, and the way that God's authority is relayed to us is through the Word of God, so, ultimately, we're going to the Word of God as the foundation for what marriage is, for what its essence is to be, what its purpose is to be, how we are to deal with problems in the marriage, what, our, what we're called to do as husbands, what we're called to do as uh, wives, what we're called to do as parents, all of these things. We're submitting ourselves to God who instituted this for his own purposes. And that's where we must all be convinced of. If you don't start there, you're going to have problems. You're going to look to Oprah for solutions. You're going to look, look to, you know, your favorite family on TV or favorite movie characters for how, you know, they work out their marriages. You may go to your friends or family who may not be believers and just, well, they seem to be happy. They seem to be, you know, making it happen. Let me, let me ask them for some advice, which, you know, may or may not be the most sanctified advice. So... With that being said, what is it, what is the most um, foundational purpose or, or what's the most foundational essence of this divine institution of marriage? What has God said, um, I could ask, or what would you say is the most basic purpose, the most foundational purpose of God's having, of God's having created marriage? What, why did God say, now... I know I've asked my wife, I've asked Scott, I've asked Kata. Uh, you guys can't answer. Um, I asked these guys months ago when I read this book. And, because they all gave the same answer. My wife gave the same answer, Scott, Chris. They all gave the same answer. It's not the answer I'm looking for. They gave a theological correct truth. What's the historical grammatical answer to why God instituted marriage? I think, was it Jonathan? Yes, sir. Well, I was going to go the theological route in yeah. Ephesians 5. But... Right. It is a picture of the gospel, right? Um, um, yeah, the historical grammatical would be just the, the further humanity to, to further humanity, like to propagate the human. No, I wouldn't say that. I would say that's true. That's not the most foundational essence. There's a lot of hands. I think Lynn, you won.
1: Um, well, first not good that God said was it was not good for man to be alone.
0: Right. That's, that's where Jay Adams is going. Right, that's where Jan's (laughs) You got it. Yeah. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Right? It says, After creating all of these things, after creating man, then in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So, in essence, the, the problem, the, the falling short of perfection or the, the, the emptiness that needed to be corrected was the problem of loneliness. Loneliness. And so the answer to the loneliness that Adam would have had or the, the lack that Adam needed to have filled was companionship. Companionship. And that's a big word that J. Adams is saying needs to be uh, reiterated to people and they need to understand that that basic as, essence of marriage is filling the need for companionship and it goes both ways as we're going to see there's a there's a there's a a need that the husband needs to fulfill to his wife for companionship and there's a certain way she needs to be fulfilled in that companionship and, and man as well there's a need that he has to be fulfilled in companionship and, and it goes both ways It goes both ways. Let's look at a couple of passages that reiterate that. Let's look at Malachi. Turn to the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2 verse 14. Because I was surprised as he started making some of these references how often um, companionship, even that exact word is how the NASB translates it, just how often that concept is being used. The concept of companionship, Malachi 2.14, here, um, I've actually preached through this passage, here here the people of Israel are are asking God why he's not um, honoring their sacrifices. The the fellowship with God has been broken between Israel and God. In verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Israel asks God, Malachi answers, because the Lord has been a witness between you and and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion that's the language that we're we're referencing though she is your companion and your wife by covenant see that that the just the just that organic foundational language being used companionship and marriage turn to proverbs chapter 2 proverbs chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 just some more text that leave us with the same truth. In Proverbs chapter 2, as, as you, may, you may be aware here, the the father is trying to give wisdom to his son, warning him about the adulterous woman. And in verse 16, he says that he's trying to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. And this is the description that he gives of this adulterous woman, that that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. See how that language is just used in several different places? That was, was kind of a surprise to me, but I, I understand it now. Uh, but companionship is just an organic and foundational connection of, between marriage and the what's to be happening between husband and wife. You're to be filling um, a need in their life for companionship, and we're going to look at how we are to fulfill that need and what the need actually actually is. But as we looked at these two passages, for instance, in Malachi and in Proverbs, what other concept is introduced? Not just marriage being um, companionship, but what other concept is introduced there, Brother Mike? I'm seeing that the
1: greater overall concept of this. Mm-hmm. our relationship with, with Christ mm-hmm. in
0: the marriage feast. Mm-hmm. And Christ being the groom and we are the bride. Mm-hmm. So I think through this marriage on earth we have our spouse, God is using this to better prepare us for that day. Amen. You know, for Christ, the marriage of Christ. To the extent that we do everything I'm saying we will be a picture of what you're saying, right? Well, so this is a type. It's a type. Yeah, yeah we're living out a type. A type. Yeah. But it's back to what I was saying. Like, we're, what, I'm, what I'm arguing for is that there's, in your marriage vow, in your marriage agreement, you're agreeing to fulfill a, a companion, to be a companion for your spouse. But what other important concept? Go ahead. Covenant. The yeah. concept of covenant. Now, why is that? I mean, it was both, it was in both passages here, Malachi 2 and Proverbs 2.16. Um, she's forgetting the covenant of her God, and in Malachi it said that she's your companion, your wife, by covenant. And so as the Bible introduces that language, and this is not where it's introduced. I mean, I believe that, that covenant idea is back in Genesis as well, but for that reality to be there means... It's taking this agreement, it's taking this vow that you made, this commitment that you this duty that you have to fulfill this in your spouse to the highest level that the Bible can take it. Meaning you you are bound before God by covenant to fulfill this in your spouse. And there's no there's no higher calling that you could have than to be bound by covenant to God and to your spouse to fulfill this a role in them. Because if you think back again to Genesis, uh, where the the even the language and picture of covenant is first being displayed for us, for instance in like Genesis 15, where you have God making a covenant with Abraham and he's showing us there through the the dividing of the animals, the the splitting of the animals and passing through them, right? By covenant. That's what the word covenant means. Barit means literally to cut. So as the word is being used throughout the Bible berit, to to make a covenant you should be thinking to cut a covenant that's the literal etymology of the word and so it's always thinking back to that Genesis 15 reality of when you're making a covenant you're making a promise you're vowing that you're going to that you're that something's being killed you're passing through it and you're saying if I don't keep my promise if I don't keep my covenant vow then I will be then I will be split and killed in the way that animal was and so that's why I'm saying that To introduce that language into what our marriages are is we have the highest commitment before God to fulfill these callings in our spouse's lives, to be a companion that they actually need. So um, we just need to recognize the seriousness of the situation that way. You may not have been aware of how serious a commitment you were making. I I wasn't aware of how serious of a commitment I was making when I got married, but I'm bound to that covenant that I made before God, right? It's better not to make a vow Right? But if you've made one, you better keep it to the Lord. Yes, ma'am.
1: I was just going to say, I guess, shortly after my salvation, about four years or five years, and the first time I understood marriage to be, the way Paul Washer had stated, it's like you're being, I think that's the most, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The area of your life where you're going to be mostly conformed to the image of Christ. And he did this ceremony, um, he, he did a wedding, and it was like an hour long. And I remember just tears streaming down my face. I never understood marriage in that way. Mm-hmm. And it just opened a whole <clears throat> another light. And it made sense. When I heard mm-hmm. it, I was like, yeah, it does require that. Mm-hmm. And especially after you're saved. You, know, you never realized your marriage is dead until you're saved. And it's like, it really is. I mean, it's everything you have. Mm -hmm. you know, sacrificial uh, love and, you know, dying to self every day,
0: and you're committed. Mm -hmm.
1: No matter what. No matter what.
0: I mean, that's, that's, I mean, use the language of sacrificial. I mean, out of everything that I've read, you know, and especially what he's saying, like, that is what we need to take apart from this. Hopefully, that's what I leave you with, is that marriage is a commitment for you to give. Why do we enter marriage? Because we think, we're going to receive. That's not what we're. That's not what we're promising, right? Like, uh, I, I promise that you know, I will receive all good things from my wife. I, I do. That's not. Has nothing to do with your marriage vows. It's what you're committing to do, and you're committing to sacrifice for the needs of somebody else. That's what marriage actually is. And and I, I know I didn't, I didn't grasp it when I got married either, um, but. This language, so this is this is a phrase that Jay Adams uses and recommends, and just in light of everything that we looked at, he likes to sum up what the essence of marriage is by referring to it as a covenant of companionship. That's the language he uses over and over and over. He's a like, people need to understand that they're entering into a covenant of companionship. And and that's not the companionship that necessarily you're gonna receive, but it's the companionship that you're giving to your spouse. You're making a covenant that you're gonna be a companion to them in the way that they need it, in the way that the Bible calls for you to be a companion to them. So you're entering into a covenant that you're going to do these things for your spouse. Um, Another important thing to notice is that, as kind of like I said, is that you're covenanting to fulfill your spouse's needs in companionship regardless of what they do or don't do for you. Right? Because that, that's that's what was in my mind. Because I had said, I doubt any of your wedding vows went like, I promise to have and to hold, to love, to honor, to cherish, as long as you fulfill your end of the deal. <laughs> right? That's, that's not what we promised. That's not what we covenanted before God. We covenanted that we're going to love, hold, cherish, honor, till death do us part. No, No qualifications. Mm-hmm. Right? So, that's what you promised God you were going to do for your spouse. And that is what you should have promised. That's right. That is what... You're to do all these things for your spouse. And so it's just helpful to have that, that picture of a covenant of companionship. It's entered into by both both parties. The husband and the wife have both made the same covenant promise to not receive but to give. Not to receive but to give. They both made the, the covenant to fulfill their spouse's needs. Now, yeah, we can't, we can't talk about marriage without turning to Ephesians 5, so we might as well because there is a perfect... Um, presentation of how this is a mutual commitment by both parties. It's a mutual commitment, a mutual covenant being made by both the husband and the wife to fulfill the needs of one another. And here in Ephesians 5, it's some of the most foundational needs mentioned. Uh, For instance, like verse 21, I think there's an awkward, at least in the NASB, I think verse 21 would be a good heading for the whole next section and the beginning of chapter 6. But verse 21 says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so, what's so, what's so blessed about the Word of God is that he goes on to describe for us the details of how it is that we're to subject ourselves to one another. How it is that we're to fulfill our calling to one another, and that's what he goes on um, to do in Ephesians five twenty-two. So first he addresses the wives, right? Verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Wow, in everything. Yes, ma'am. Hand went up on. on up. <laughs> well,
1: just real quick, can you clarify? I guess everything. I get confused more in First Peter and Ephesians mm-hmm. 22. So, when we're talking about wise men subject to your own husbands as the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, now, does this go both ways for the unbelieving husband and believing husband? I mean, so I guess I, I have several friends that have un- unbelieving spouses, and I'm always mm-hmm. trying to minister to them. Through these verses, but then sometimes I don't know which way it's going. Is it well, preaching? no, you
0: said it. First Peter 3 would be where they need to go, right? Because that's, the, I think.
1: So that is specifically pertaining to so. unbelieving
0: scots. Yeah. Okay. It's but saying not if there's a, a, um, Well, yeah, the truth is there nonetheless. It doesn't qualify here, but First Peter 3, it's talking specifically about how you're to submit yourself in, with a quiet and gentle spirit to an unbelieving husband. So, yeah, even there. But that First Peter 3 is the text for them. Um, so so why the call then? Why the call that Paul gives here for women to love, or that's not even the language he uses, to submit, to subject themselves to their husbands and everything? Why the call for that? Well, we've already mentioned it a couple times. Number one, our marriage is being a portrayal of the gospel, right? The wife is given the role of the church in that picture of the gospel. And so just as the church we submit ourselves fully to the lordship of Christ. That's the role that the wife is playing in the picture of the marriage gospel, and so that's why she has that role of being submissive to her husband. But also, um, notice this: that that submission and respect—that's what your husband needs. That's how you are fulfilling the need that your husband has. The need—that's the kind of companion that he needs is a companion who's going to be submissive and respectful to him. That's how you're fulfilling your covenant promise to be a, a, a companion to your husband by being submissive and respectful to him because he doesn't just need you to be submissive so that he can fulfill his role as a leader. That's true. He can't lead unless you're submissive, but it's also just part of you fulfilling the need that he has. God made him to in such a way that His role is to lead, and he needs somebody to respect and submit to him. So you're fulfilling that God-given plan and setup um, for his role and and for what he needs. That's how you're fulfilling what he needs. He needs somebody to respect him and to honor him in that way. Um, Let's look at the, the husbands part here in Ephesians 5.25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So just as I said, all of this is a, is a mutual uh, giving. Why do husbands have this call to love their wives in this way? Well, because the the husband is, is playing the role of Christ in this picture of the gospel that marriage is. That's what Paul tells us. Um, if you look down, for instance, in verse 32, we're, we're, we're portraying a picture of the gospel in our marriages. The man has been given this calling to love his church, or to love his bride, just as Christ loves the church. And so the way that Christ loves us, the church, is that he leads us. Um, He lays himself down in a sacrificial sacrificial way. He nourishes us. He cherishes us. he, He washes us with his word. All of these things is how we fulfill that picture of the gospel. But that's not it. Everything that Ephesians 5 is telling us here is 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 the actual needs that your wife has to be fulfilled. And that's the needs that she has. That's the companionship she needs. She need whether she knows it or not, God knows what we need more than we do. Your wife might not be asking for these things, but the Bible's saying this is what she needs. She needs a leader. She needs somebody to nourish her, to cherish her, to wash her with the word. That's what she needs. And that's your covenant commitment to God is to fulfill that for your wife. You to love her in that way. Um, that's that's what's going on there. And so Ephesians 5, I, I like it because it gives us both sides of the pictures, how it is that we're to take care of each other. Because in Ephesians 5, it's not telling you, in a sense, what to receive. It's telling you what you're to do. Right? You have... A, a duty as we're going to see the, the scripture calls it. Um, we have a duty and it's not a we didn't make a vow to, to receive. we made a vow to give. And so time's about out. let's look at the last let's look at one more practical <coughs> very I would say very practical example of just this mutual call to take care of the companionship needed in our spouse's lives. Turn to first Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is just a very real, very practical example of this call that we have, this duty that we have to fulfill our spouse's needs. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, so the Apostle Paul is just answering questions that the Corinthian church had for him. He says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Verse 3, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. Now in case any of you don't know what we're talking about here, we're talking about the sexual duty that you have as a husband to your wife. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. And likewise, also, the wife to her husband. It goes both ways. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of, of self-control. Isn't that a very real and practical example that the Apostle Paul does not shy away from? But in this, it's really putting forward for us exactly a perfect example of what I'm saying is that there's desires, there's needs that are to be fulfilled, and it's your duty to fulfill them for your husband and for your wife. And the Scripture clearly calls us to this. And what's Scripture calling us to? It's calling us to give. Right? Many of us entered into marriage to receive these benefits, right? That's not what Paul's talking about. Everything Paul's calling you to is to be giving of these benefits for the sake of your spouse, right? So I think we just have a totally backwards view of what marriage is intended to do, it's in, it's, or what you're committed to do in marriage. You're, you're committed to fulfill the need of your spouse, not be fulfilled, you're to do these things whether you're fulfilled or not, you see, which is totally uh, contrary to the reason that most people, most people get married. So you, you covenanted before God to give what benefits in this text to your spouse. Well, verse 3 says that this is the duty of both, husband and wives, to, to fulfill your spouse in this way. Notice verse 5 says that this is a constant duty a constant duty that you're to fulfill for your spouse. Um, he's saying, "Stop depriving one another. Stop depriving of How do you know if you're fulfilling your wife in any of the things? How do you know you're fulfilling your husband in any any way? How can you know if you're if you're doing your job or not? If you're keeping your covenant commitment before God, ask them. Yeah. Ask them. <laughs> right. You need to know if you're fulfilling your obligation to God in marriage and loving your wife or, lo- or honoring your husband in the way you're supposed to. Ask them, am I fulfilling what you need from me in any of these ways? But particularly here, I would say you need to ask your husband or wife where you're at in that situation. Just open, honest, very direct question. I'm sure they would be glad to answer that question. I'm sure they would not hesitate. Um, but notice also um, the, ne- the necessity here for even in this example to provide for your spouse in this way, it says to be keeping them from to be tempted by Satan. And that, that goes true for any anything that your husband or I just keep saying wife because that's what I'm thinking about. I need to do is anything I'm not fulfilling my wa- for my wife, I'm opening her up to temptation. If she's not being fulfilled in whatever way it is, She's going to look for that fulfillment somewhere else or somehow because she has needs. She has things to be fulfilled. It's not an excuse for her to go find those things somewhere else, right? But he's just saying, don't leave them open to temptation. Fulfill the needs of your spouse. And that's, that's what we're being called to. And like 1 Corinthians 7 is just one example of how um, we are covenanted to fulfill the commitments of our spouses and to fulfill their needs. And So again, these covenants that everybody in here, if you're married, that you've entered into is primarily not a covenant that you should be thinking about what you're getting out of. Primarily, it's a covenant that you've committed to before God to fulfill the needs of your spouse. And if there's any doubt about what needs your spouse has that aren't explicitly mentioned, for instance, like in Ephesians 5, you need to ask your spouse, what do you need from me? Because before God, I, I, I need to fulfill whatever it is that that you need. So, as we said earlier, to the extent that we do these things, to the extent that we um, fulfill our callings, to fulfill our husbands or our wives, to that extent do we display the gospel of Jesus Christ. To that extent, can we point to our marriage and say, "Look how I'm look how I'm <coughs> depicting the work of Christ by laying down my life for my wife or." The wife can say, look how I'm submitting myself to the authority of my husband, just like the church does to Jesus Christ, because he protects us and saves us and watches over us. So to the extent that we do these things is to the extent that we portray the gospel, which is, I know is the desire of all of our hearts. Um, that's what we want to glorify Christ in these things. And this is the way that I believe that we can do that. Um, next week, because I have one more week on this, what I'm going to do is bring up um, some common problems some common problems that arise in marriage. And I think just based on the very basic, simple principles that we've looked at today, the Genesis 2, right? it's not good for man to be alone, um, the submission, the love principles of Ephesians, just with these principles I think we'll be able to answer right, the, the problems that arise, the most common problems that arise in marriage. Hopefully we'll work through some of those next week and just see how to think through these things biblically and how to help A brother or sister or or, or ourselves right if we don't even maybe we don't even recognize some of the problems we may think our marriage is fine but maybe the the word of God will expose some areas where we need to grow and to love our our wives and husbands better so we'll do that next week we'll look at some, some common problems that are in the word of God let's pray and then we'll go to service well Father Father we thank you that we have a gospel to act out for you we thank you that you have sent your son to save us, and we thank you that he is, is a good Savior and is a good Lord and is and is easy to submit to, Lord, and forgive us where we are not good saviors of the body for our wives, and we are not good lords over her, Lord. Help us to to be good and to be righteous and to be those who our wives are, are willing to submit to, and help us to make that easier for them, Lord, and for our wives give them the faith give them the faith to to trust you as they submit to us and if they doubt our judgments lord help them to trust your judgment that it's good and right that they submit lord and in these ways lord just give us grace lord we need it many of us it's it's not to lead is not something that we even desire to do it's too much work and for wives they may not want to submit that's That's too much work, but Lord, we know that this is what your word says and how we're to glorify you, so may you be glorified in our marriages, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.